This is a message for those that work in manufacturing across the UK and Ireland. Do your engineering maintenance stores keep you awake at night? Are your engineers spending excessive time sourcing and finding the spare parts they need? Eric's on-site teams take responsibility for your indirect supply chain, including both your MRO procurement and inventory control. And, as the name suggests, we do this while being based on your site. For more information, visit www.erics.co.uk forward slash em. This episode of Engineering Matters is supported by The Optimistic Outlook. The Optimistic Outlook is a great listen for fans of Engineering Matters. It is a podcast for anyone intrigued by innovation across sectors, whether you're in healthcare, infrastructure, energy or beyond. The show is hosted by Barbara Hampton, CEO of Siemens USA, and offers invaluable insights relevant and impactful for all industries. I think what you're really going to like is that Barbara Hampton is not just a CEO, she's a thought leader in the corporate world. In the podcast, you often learn from her journey to the top of Siemens USA, getting invaluable lessons on leadership, decision-making, and navigating the complexities of the modern workplace. Barbara brings a wealth of knowledge, not just about manufacturing, but about its ripple effects across all sectors. Her perspective illuminates how manufacturing innovations are setting the pace for changes in healthcare, infrastructure development, energy sustainability, and more. Regardless of your industry, the optimistic outlook is a source of motivation and forward-thinking ideas. Barbara's expertise in connecting dots between manufacturing and other sectors reveals actionable strategies for innovation and leadership in any field. We invite you to explore the optimistic outlook and join a broad audience that values transformative ideas, including us. Search for the optimistic outlook wherever you get your podcasts. Soon, much of the power we use will be generated from renewable sources. Wind and sun offer abundant clean power and combined with efficient storage may be able to support almost all of our energy needs. We've seen in recent episodes how engineers are finding new ways to enable the energy transition. In episode 231, we spoke to participants at the upcoming IET event, Power Net Zero, and learned how investments in longer-term storage are allowing power companies to make the most of intermittent renewables. In the same episode, we learned how vehicle-to-grid storage might support these larger-scale storage projects with a form of distributed storage. We've seen how even the most demanding applications, such as heavy construction equipment, can be driven from low power sources. That was episode 220. How batteries may power planes. Episode 227. And how green hydrogen might replace fossil fuels in energy-intensive mineral processing. And that was in episode 228. Every innovation like this brings us a step closer to net zero. But there are some places that renewable energy just can't reach. Places far from the grid, at the poles for example, where the dark of night lasts for weeks or disaster zones where existing power sources have been damaged or destroyed. Or, as we saw in episode 230, on military forward bases where bringing fossil fuels or installing a renewables-based system carries significant risk. 
Now British power systems specialist Rolls-Royce is developing a new approach that will provide a constant source of power, small enough to fit inside a standard shipping container, but with the output of a large onshore wind turbine. Once commercialised, this technology will power the places that other sources can't reach. But first, they want to bring power to one of the toughest environments we know. Somewhere as far from the grid as any human being has ever been. To the moon. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Rian Owen. And I'm Johnny Dowling. Today we're looking at Rolls-Royce's nuclear mission to the moon. It's a mission that could enable a new wave of space exploration and settlement, but it could also power new terrestrial applications and the UK economy. The technology Rolls-Royce is developing is called a micro-reactor. It's different to other nuclear power plants that are currently available and used, um, predominantly because it's a lot smaller. We've covered one type of compact reactor before, small modular reactors or SMRs, but a micro-reactor is even smaller. I think really an interesting bit of context, which I kind of like to talk about, for people to get clear in their mind, is the, the size and the differences between different products. So your SMR is two football fields, half a gigawatt, pressurised water reactor, submarine reactor, can't, won't, not able to say much about it at all, but obviously fits in the submarine, pressurised water reactor and, you know, megawatts. Then you cross over a, a technology or, or a bit of an engineering divide, really, because then you're into the novel nuclear micro-reactors, which are different. They're not pressurised water reactors. They're a simpler design and the terrestrial variant would fit in a lorry and that'll be one to five maybe ten megawatts space variant will fit in a small family car micro reactors are not just smaller but they deliver power in a different way to most reactors micro reactor is a totally different set of technology so it's more of a, a solid state much simpler system it doesn't pump uh, water around as a coolant, it doesn't have large backup systems. You know, you can fit this thing into a footprint of a small family car. It's not a power station size footprint or a large ship in a marine application. So it's simple by design. It's quite passive as well. And the a lot of the safety we build into the, the core from the fuel outwards. So we'll be using an encapsulated fuel, which is a, the latest and greatest safe uh, kind of nuclear fuel form. That was Gary Jones, head of manufacturing at Rolls-Royce. For a sector where spontaneous unplanned disassembly is a constant threat, every care must be taken. But Rolls-Royce engineers have been building nuclear reactors to power the Royal Navy's submarine fleet for decades. They know how to design reactors for long-term use in challenging environments. 
For this new type of reactor, their first step was to develop that special type of nuclear fuel. To, to make micro-reactors uh, a reality and to enable these things to be small and mobile and used in many different applications, obviously safety is paramount to that. And by using a new fuel form, which is where you encapsulate each grain of fuel in multiple very tough, hard layers to ensure that you don't get any fission product release. This idea builds on standard approaches to ensuring nuclear safety. Standard water reactors don't use a big lump of fuel either. They have fuel pins, which might be made up of a small number of lozenges connected together to form a pin that is clad to maintain its integrity and put into an array. With, with encapsulated fuel, you are you're actually coating individual particles, so about the size of a poppy seed. So there's, there's a capability now where you can put multiple layers around something that small. And then, you know, at a kind of grain level, you've actually encapsulated that material in those multiple layers. And then you can bring that with other particles. It basically looks like powder and then bring that together into the end form and the shape that you need to allow that to create heat and then move the heat out. So you, if you think of the safety, if you like, in a large civil power plant, you're, I'm putting it a bit simply, but you're kind of shrinking that right down and moving the safety right around that, the individual grain of material and you're embedding safety around it by those multiple layers. Developing this novel fuel will lay the groundwork for the commercialization of microreactors. It will help take an idea that has only been used before experimentally and turn it into reality. There's a lot of test reactors that were done in laboratories for specific challenges that had a fair amount of commonality between them, but um, there hasn't been a production line of micro-reactors that were pushed out into the market at any point. So they're, yeah, they're kind of very sophisticated and very intelligent kind of science and laboratory type experiments in the day. But the technologies that were developed are really useful even now. And that's that really long drumbeat that is nuclear, you know, it takes a long time to do this and that's why not many people at all globally do it. In the 70s, the US launched a micro-reactor, essentially called SNAP-10, which was an experimental thing um, which was sent up into orbit for a short amount of time and operated for a short amount of time as a bit of a test case. There's no micro-reactors on the moon or, or anywhere else um, and we believe there's a market for that and therefore there should be volume to that. Bringing a micro-reactor to the moon will allow Rolls-Royce to plant a flag in a new market. It will let them prove the technology can withstand the toughest environmental conditions. Batteries and electronics don't like to be at minus 100 to 200 degrees C for a certain amount of time, and then plus 100 to 120, 130 for another set of time. So keeping that you know, in, a, in a, a relatively tight bound is quite useful. So heat's very important in space. Um, we'll use the heat 
And where we can't, we use radiators to dissipate the heat. Because you don't have convection or any meaningful conduction in space. Transporting anything into space remains a challenge. Even the largest rockets have only limited payloads. Nuclear power offers key benefits here. I think there's, there's, there's probably two main things about nuclear. The, the power density and the fact that it's mostly agnostic as to the environment that it's in. So power density, I mean, you're talking grams of material can provide you significant amount of power for years, you know. That, that, whereas if you compared to, you know, a traditional uh, gas turbine or a propulsion system that uses chemical propellant in a space application, you know, you're talking thousands of litres. That, that power density, is, the difference is incredible. It really is. It um, takes a bit of time to understand just how much power can be harnessed out of that nuclear reaction. That uh, is phenomenal. That's a real game changer. Batteries and electronics don't work well in extreme temperatures. On the moon, temperatures can range from a couple of hundreds of degrees centigrade below zero and then soar to as much as plus 130 degrees. Rolls-Royce engineers will develop ways to transfer and use that heat as much as possible, and radiators to remove it when it can't be used. Micro-reactors are compact. They can be carried to space on a rocket or to the Arctic on the back of a lorry. They provide power constantly. They don't need the sun to be shining or the wind to be blowing. And they work without needing a supply of water for cooling or to power turbines. But Rolls-Royce's engineers still have a lot of work to do, first to bring them to the moon and then to make them commercially available. So we're in our concept phase at the moment, so we've actually got different methods that we're looking at. So we're not that mature yet. Um, but what we do know is we'll have a, a, a much simpler design that allows heat to move wherever possible in a passive manner out from the core. So we're looking at uh, heat pipes at the moment. Really interesting technology, very, very simple. Um, heat on one end equals very, very tra quick transfer and heat out of the other. Um, you'll find heat pipes commonly used. You, you'll find little ones in your iPhones or other phones are available. Uh, laptops as well have, have little copper heat pipes in. Really effective method of moving heat around. Um, and then because we'll be looking to transfer that into an exchanger and then into a turbine, we'll be probably looking at uh, gas. So gas as a medium to move that, that heat on through the system in a really efficient manner, because you don't want to have a wasteful system, you need to have quite an efficient system. To develop the micro-reactor, Rolls-Royce will need to develop highly efficient heat transfer systems and they'll need to draw on their expert engineers, like Katie Jarman. So heat transfer, I'm a thermofluid engineer, so this is my favourite topic. Um, I can talk for hours on heat transfer. I won't. So We spoke to Katie and the rest of the Rolls-Royce team earlier in the summer. At that point, they were getting to work on refining the microreactor design, supported by the UK Space Agency. Yeah, the current contract that we've got ongoing with the UK Space Agency is about £5 million. 
pans as yeah. a whole. Um, we're investigating specific parts and specific technologies of the microreactor. So from the generation of the heat in the fuel, containing that in the core, transferring the heat through either a gas-cooled reactor system or heat pipes to how that heat is converted into useful electricity in yeah. the back-end Brayton cycle. Um, we've also got some more integration work packages as part of that work, um, which is all about making the engineering a lot more tangible, either from a hardware perspective. So work package one, as it's referred to, is all about how these things can fit together in hardware form. And then work package six is all about the virtual reality of it and how we can make it more tangible to both the engineers working on it to not be an R&D project, but feel like a real product already. So we're thinking about the right things and de-risking the right things. And also from an inspirational perspective, so we can go to conferences and give people a real feel for how it's going to operate and what it's going to look like. Katie and her colleagues are looking at how different technologies can be used to move heat from the core to be used directly or converted into electricity. So heat transfer is particularly challenging from a size and weight perspective. So the two high-level options are either gas cooling, where you run gas, helium, xenon through the core, and then you run that gas through a power conversion system and use the heating of the gas to transfer the energy. The alternative is using heat pipes, which are quite a well-established technology. So I think they use heat pipes in ovens at the moment and lots of micro microchips and things um, to provide cooling, which use two-phase heat transfer. So the hot end, you basically evaporate some fluid and then the wick structure in the heat pipe flows the fluid down to the cooling end and then it condenses and transfers the fluid to a working gas, which then goes through your power conversion system. So the benefits of heat pipes are that they're entirely passive. They don't require any moving parts. They're low pressure, um, but they can get quite big. So potentially for high, higher power applications, a gas system might be better. Heat pipes offer real benefits for space applications. The current space agency work is looking at heat pipes trying to validate some performance, engineering performance models to be able to understand more about how they work, their limitations, particularly in micro and zero gravity environments. And then that's feeding into our overall technology selection as part of our concept design as we're picking the right way to go. Heat pipes have been uh, investigated quite significantly for space applications because of their passive heat transfer and also because of the very extreme environment that you get in space you can go from kind of plus hundreds of degrees to minus hundreds of degrees in a two-week period so you have lots of thermal challenges and keeping things like energy storage systems batteries hot or warm to improve their efficiency is really important and heat pipes can be used to do that or to facilitate radi radiators and things, which is another big engineering challenge that we're, we're working through. Bringing all of the systems together that will be needed for lunar micro-reactors will require collaboration across Rolls-Royce and with outside partners. It's happening all over the shop. 
So we've got partners in Bangor on the fuel, we've got partners at the Welding Institute, we've got partners at down in Bristol where Rolls-Royce Aerospace is based um, and we've got other um, university partners in Oxford and Loughborough as well. I'm probably forgetting people so. Throughout the development process the engineers will maintain a constant focus on safety. We're designing for safety, we're making sure that all of those barriers and all of those defence in depth mechanisms are in there from the start, both from a design and technological perspective and also from a people perspective. So we've got a lot of new starters in the team at the moment and it's really important that each one of those people involved in the project really understands their individual role in product safety and we all have a collective responsibility to make sure that the product that we are designing and that will go into service is as safe as it possibly can be and the risk is as low as reasonably practicable. So we're already instigating product safety review boards, we've already got safety management plans and training schemes as well to make sure that we're really set up to be able to deliver a safe product. And what's next for the research programme? A more engineering fun. So we're progressing the kind of core design programme and that will be ramping up in the next year, um, both on the space side and the earth-based side. We'll continue to do testing and mature our understanding and mature the technology as well throughout that time so that we're in a really good position to get into manufacturing, proper you know, integration, so that we've got a first of a kind by the end of the decade. Delivering reliable, constant power to the moon will be a giant leap in our exploration of the cosmos. But it is, in many ways, just the first step in making microreactors a commercial success. Catherine Harvey is Business Development Manager for Rolls-Royce's novel nuclear business. For space, we're focusing on developing a lunar surface power or something that could be used for lunar surface power. There are other space uses that you could do, so nuclear electric propulsion, nuclear thermal propulsion are examples of that, so that could then be used in satellite manoeuvring, in getting to Mars, in various other different bits and pieces. There's then the more Earth-based uses, so a lot of the principles of the technology that we're developing for space could also be used on Earth. Um, the product itself would likely to be a bit different. Your power output would probably need to be a bit higher. Um, but your main principles could be used anywhere really that needs sustainable off-grid power um, that removing the fuel supply chain that comes with, say, diesel would be as benefit. Uh, anywhere that maybe doesn't have that reliable solar or wind energy. For earth-based uh, uses, you'd, we're looking at developing sort of around five megawatts for us. Uh, that's where our technology is looking at the moment. That's about the same as a decent-sized onshore wind turbine. But a wind turbine needs building, while a micro-reactor can be delivered, ready to be turned on, in a container-sized unit. And once it's up and running, it keeps providing power, regardless of the weather. We're focusing around keeping them deployable and, and in order to do that, we are keeping them 
sort of within the envelope of a, a standard 40 foot ISO shipping container. Mm-hmm. Um, that allows them to be more easily transportable. The goal is for these terrestrial microreactors to be manufactured in serial production, not as one-offs. That will, Catherine believes, help them compete in cost terms with renewables, particularly in locations where logistics or environmental extremes pose additional challenges. It's not going to necessarily be as low as wind and solar might be, but there are places where wind and solar just doesn't work. And I think... We see this as part of the solution, the sustainable energy solution. It's not going to replace the the uses for wind and solar, but it will work alongside them to make up a full grid or full set of power along with bigger nuclear, small nuclear, wind, other renewables to make mean that we don't have to rely on the fossil fuel side of things in the future. We've done some of the numbers and we, we genuinely think it is cost competitive in, in the environments that we're targeting. Multiple microreactors could be combined with other power sources and energy storage for locations where more power is needed. Some of the discussions that we've had with different potential users actually are quite find that quite appealing to have a couple, two or three at a site maybe in different locations from a security perspective or um, as in just protecting their their energy supply chain perspective. It could be that as a site grows, you have one to power it to start with. If then a site grows, you have a second one that comes and plugs in. It could be that they work alongside other power sources, so you more traditional renewables, such as solar and wind, um, so, essentially, part of a microgrid solution would be would absolutely be an option. The first customers for a terrestrial reactor will likely be those whose mission is critical, for whom logistics are a constant challenge, and who have the budget needed to drive forward innovative engineering solutions. With the Earth-based or terrestrial applications of a microreactor, it would probably be a defence-led. Um, a lot of smaller nuclear stuff on Earth would be is defence-led. Once you've proven the concept in a defence environment, we suspect there will be a number of other industries that would be interested in bringing this as a solution to some of their energy needs. That will then open the door to new applications. Disaster relief is absolutely one of those options. So something that could be shipped in into a zone that needs to power up their critical infrastructure quickly and get it back online while everything else is fixed back up. You've also got isolated communities or remote communities, whether that be some of the smaller uh, British Isles who are reliant on power being sort of piped in from other locations, whether you've got sort of remote communities in Alaska that are currently dependent on barges shipping in diesel for three months of a year because that's the only time that you can actually get a barge in and the rest of the time it's frozen over. So all sorts of remote community applications, but then you've also got some of the more uh, industrial or commercial uses such as remote mining, 
um, where you might need to go in for a period of time, have some quite high energy equipment that needs powering, and then it all needs clearing out and the site needs maybe you know, setting back to as it was as much as possible. Um, or things like data centers that want to be off grid, take a lot, of, a lot of power, but want to manage their own energy, you know, want to be off grid. They don't want to be reliant necessarily on, on grid power. So there's, there's all sorts of different uses, some more commercial than others. Developing the first microreactor will take both giant leaps, like those encapsulated fuel pellets, and small steps, like the optimization of heat transfer systems. Making it possible to manufacture microreactors commercially will take more giant leaps and more small steps. There's a few sort of big hitter challenges. Other than just the, the standard technology development, there'll be some decent investment in scaling up your manufacturing. The plan is that these will be manufactured. They won't be one-offs. They'll be manufactured as sort of serial production. So you'll need some investment in infrastructure. With the UK facing its own new challenges, post-Brexit and post-Covid, the development of commercial microreactors could power a robust new industry with a deep supply chain. I think there's options to uh, commercialise it in the UK. I think the UK is is quite uniquely positioned in that we we have nuclear capability that we we well in the civil sector we kind of paused for a bit but in the defense sector we've we've carried that on and we've got that heritage in the UK of designing manufacturing commissioning um, and then supporting in service through to decommissioning of nuclear reactors, small nuclear reactors. So why would we not leverage that as, some, as a key skill that the UK has that it could trade? Building that supply chain will require new engineers with new skills. Rolls-Royce is helping deliver those new recruits with an apprenticeship programme. Some of these are following the traditional path, working their way up from the shop floor, but others are combining that on-the-job learning with university training. Apprentices are not necessarily your, what people traditionally view apprentices as, which is your shop floor um, operator. So actually of the 200 apprentices we take a year, only 60 of them are into operator roles. The rest are either in, it says 110 that are going into engineering roles, either as degree apprentices or uh, engineering technicians. Um, and the rest are going through a nuclear business, uh, business degree, so they're business degree apprentices. So what that means is they are doing their degree alongside their experience that they're getting through their apprenticeship. So they come out at the end of the programme with four years experience plus their engineering degree, which has been designed for the industry that they're going into. So they come out with both and actually can jump a little bit ahead of maybe a graduate who doesn't have the same work experience. Robert Spencer is one of those degree apprentices. The course he took with Rolls-Royce has helped him meet the nearly impossible challenges posed by some recruiters. You see all of the memes on LinkedIn and whatnot about people wanting someone who's 22 with a university degree and five years experience and that's what the apprenticeship really gives you. 
It's helped Robert leapfrog other candidates who lack the practical experience the degree apprenticeship has given him. And that helps Rolls-Royce recruit people with the skills new engineering sectors like this will need. So it's actually a faster way of training people for the industry. It means you can tailor it, the training from earlier on. So for the nuclear engineering degree apprenticeship that we developed with Derby University, we actually supported the university in writing that degree programme. So we know the content is suitable there's what we know what they're learning is suitable for the job and is designed for the job. And we actually see a lot more retention in the market of apprentices versus graduates. In a few years, Robert might be playing an important role in the commercialisation of microreactors. But it's not a role he saw himself in as he started thinking about his career. I was never that person when I was growing up um, who played with Lego from the age of two and, you know, was, was always going to be an engineer. But it was, um, I always found that I excelled at maths and physics, um, but not the really theoretical side of things, the very much hands-on, how do we do problem solving, how do we get things working. And, and as part of that, it just seemed like the natural route for me to go down, really. The course has given him the same practical experience that a traditional apprenticeship programme offers. We have a year at the start in the workshops where what we do is learn your sort of basic engineering skills, if you will. So your hands on milling, your hands on turning, how to read uh, CAD drawings and whatnot. And then you move into six monthly placements and they're designed to hit different key criteria so for one of them uh, you'll have to be doing design engineering role for another one you'll have to be doing a manufacturing engineering role and then one of them you'll be doing an electrical engineering role so it gives you a really broad breadth of of knowledge and skills to, to take away with you really the degree apprenticeship was was the best way for me to sort of get stuck in you know um to get a get a degree whilst also working uh, full-time and it's worked really nicely because I've ended up being able to really apply what I'm using at university into the workplace rather than just sort of learn it and then not do anything with it which I've found really really helpful in my learning. The apprenticeship program has allowed him to get a degree without the debt that typically comes with it and it's allowed him to draw on the expertise of an 18 billion pound century-old engineering business. If I'm doing a module on thermodynamics, there are 500 people in the business that I can go to and ask questions about who have been working on it for the past 40 years. That will give him, and those 200 other apprentices that Rolls-Royce takes on each year, the skills that he and the UK needs to play a role in a new green economy. And yeah, the, the breadth of even the expansion of Rolls-Royce at the minute what they're working on so from from the micro reactor to be put on the moon and terrestrially to you know your day-to-day -day submarines which i say day-to-day -day is it's completely out of this world still it's just a really exciting product engineering matters is a production of Rebe media this episode was written and produced by Will North and hosted by me, Johnny Dowling, and by Rian Owen. Editing and series supervision by John Young. 
sound engineering by Ross McPherson, and the constant and reliable power that fuels our mission is Rory Harris. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn.